First Kings 19, beginning in verse 1. Now Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came again a second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the Mount of God. And there he came to a cave and lodged in it. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, I have been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, throw down your altars or thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And he said, go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his cloak and went out and stood at the entrance of the cave. And behold, there came a voice to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only am left and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus. And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria. And Jehu, the son of Nimshi, you shall anoint to be king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Mahalah, you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet... I will leave 7,000 in Israel, 
all the knees that have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. And so he departed from there and found Elisha the son of Shaphat who was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen in front of him and he was the 12th. Elisha passed by, Elijah passed by him and cast his cloak upon him. And he left the oxen and ran after Elijah and said, let me kiss my father and my mother and then I will follow you. And he said to him, go back again for what have I done to you? And he returned from following him and took the 12 yoke of oxen and sacrificed them and boiled their flesh with the yokes of oxen and gave it to the people and they ate. And then he arose and went after Elijah and assisted him. Let's pray and ask for, the God, for God's help. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that you are the God of your people. We thank you, O Lord, that you are the shepherd of the sheep. And we know that one of the responsibilities of the shepherd is to feed the sheep. So Father, we pray that you would feed your sheep tonight. We know that your sheep know your voice and they hear it and they follow it. And so we pray, Lord, that you would speak. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. So up until about three weeks ago, I had about zero interest in soccer, except for, you know, going to watch my kids play soccer uh, whenever they did it at the rec department or, you know, playing soccer with my own kids in the backyard, the kind of soccer where I am relentless and don't, I'm not easy on them at all, and I get to beat them 97 to nothing in the backyard soccer game. Those are the only two kinds of soccer that I've enjoyed for most of my life. But about three weeks ago, this big event, apparently, that they call the World Cup, which I've never even watched before, never even watched for even a minute before, uh, came on. And so I've been kind of keeping up with it along and along, and I've watched a few games. And it's been, it's been fun to watch. Uh, it's been fun because the games are usually pretty low scoring, and so it's always, you're always kind of on the edge of your seat. It's also just amazing at the amount of physical exertion that the, the players have to put forth uh, just to play the game, right? 90 minutes of just running your heart out does not seem like a very appetizing thing. But also the emotion, the emotion of the game. All right, we see the emotion of the crowds. You know, they, they, they cry tears of joy when their teams win and they cry tears of sadness when their teams lose. An immense amount of passion. But also the emotion of, of, of the announcers, right? That's how you know when to actually pick your eyes up off of whatever else you're doing and look at the game. Because when the announcers get excited, you know something's about to happen. But even more than those two, those two it's, it's the emotion of, of the players. When they score, it's like a kid at Christmas, right? It's the amount of joy and happiness and excitement that that person has for scoring that goal is just amazing, also, the emotion that they put forth whenever they think that they can get a penalty out of the referee whenever they fall, and sometimes, yes, they're hurt, but sometimes they're obviously not that hurt. But a little bit of emotion goes a long way, apparently. But none of that compares to the amount of emotion that you see at the end of a full game, so 90 minutes plus two 15-minute halves, and then a loss, 
Friday, that, that happened twice where they played the full game, score was still tied. They played two 15-minute halves, score was still tied, and it came down to penalty kicks. And those players that were on that losing team, just one shot away from winning, the amount of emotion and sadness that you see on the field is just soul-destroying. Many of them just laying face down in the grass, sobbing, because their one chance at that trophy is gone for four years. There are no more minutes of play. There are no more chances. It's gone for four years. They're two or three games away from having the World Cup in their hands, and all of that goes out the window. There's nothing left. I think the word to kind of describe those men that are on that field sobbing after such a a loss is probably despair, right? The complete and total loss and absence of hope. They wanted that trophy so bad, but now there's no way to get it. Hope is gone. Many of us are aware that that same sort of condition of despair is true for for all humans, really. But it's even true for for Christians in in, in some sense, right? Despair is even part of of the Christian's experience. It's even part of the Christian life. And we, we kind of see that. That's where Elijah kind of winds up in the first kind of quarter of this passage, Right, he's coming off of a spiritual high. He's, he's had two chapters of just hero Elijah. Elijah the super Christian. Elijah the one that's fed by the ravens out in the wilderness. The Elijah that, that prays and God uses him to raise to life the boy who was dead. The Elijah that goes and faces off the wicked king Ahab and goes and faces off with the wicked prophets of Baal and wins. God uses his prayer and breathes fire down from heaven and consumes the offering and licks up the water. Right, that's the Elijah that we've seen the prior two chapters. But that's not the Elijah that we see here in the first handful of verses of this chapter. And after this big, huge win at Mount Carmel over the 450 prophets of Baal, we learn in verse 1 that Ahab goes and tells Jezebel, Ahab's the king of Israel, Jezebel is his wife who is really the king of, uh, of Israel, Ahab's just the pseudo-king. Ahab goes and tells Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. And we would expect at this point, Elijah at this point is expecting a a huge moment of repentance from Jezebel. Surely she can't deny the reality of a Yahweh, of a God who breathes fire from heaven when hers stood by and done nothing. Surely this is the turning point of Israel from her idolatry and false worship. But that's not the case. In verse 2, Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah, say, basically giving him, uh, or basically saying, putting, putting Elijah back on the hit list. And so here's the situation. We, we have this big redemptive historical event where God breathes fire from heaven, and it doesn't lead to repentance in Israel, and Elijah feels that in the deepest part of his soul. The people that he loves have forsaken the God that he loves. 
And he is driven to despair. His hopes for a repentant Israel have been shattered. His ministry, as we see in verse 4, as he testifies, he views as ineffective, as useless. I am no better than my fathers, he says. Christians are not immune from despair. Even super Christians are not immune from despair. Many of us have felt those sort of similar things, whether it be where we feel like we have an ineffective ministry or an ineffective life or whether we feel like we're not doing anything as whether we feel like uh, the people that we love are running away from God, whatever it be the case, there are certain circumstances that lead us to believe that all hope is lost and it can't be regained. But even though despair is sort of maybe a component of life in a fallen world, 1 Kings 19 teaches us that, that God does not leave us without a medicine for that despair. It teaches us that God never really does leave us without hope. The first way we see that is in the way actually that, that God cares for us in our moments of despair, how he deals gently with those who are prone to despair. After Elijah receives the news that Jezebel has put him back on the hit list and he's on the run for his life again, he runs and he runs to Beersheba, which is in the very south of Judah. And he leaves his servant there. And then in verse four, he goes a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree asking that he might die, obviously in a state of despair. But God feeds him. God feeds him in the wilderness by way of this supernatural sort of, not door dash, but prophet dash way out here in the middle of the wilderness. God gives him food in the middle of the desert by way of an angel. Just, it just appears right, at his, right, at his, uh, right, right, right in front of his face as he was woken from his sleep by this angel. And not only does it just appear there twice, but it's a superfood that lasts for 40 days and 40 nights, according to verse 8. So we see this man who, according to his own assessment, has nothing to live for. And not only does he have nothing to live for, but he has nothing to continue to make him to live out here in the middle of the desert. And so when he has nothing, God provides for him. When he wanted death, God gave him life for a particular reason, so that he could send him to basically the, the covenant capital of the world. Where is it that the angel acknowledges that Elijah is heading? Well, he's headed 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, to the Mount of God. This mountain is, is pretty, pretty significant in the Old Testament throughout the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. It's where, uh, it's where the people of Israel receive the covenant from God. It's, it's another name for it. Uh, scholars actually believe that this is another name for Mount Sinai. This is the place where, where God made promises to his people. This is a place where God called his people to obedience. This is a place where God made a covenant with his people. 
And this is the place where God invites Elijah back to. And this is also the place where God had revealed himself to Moses as he passed by as Moses was in the cleft of the rock. But why why here? Right, the question remains, why bring him here to this particular mountain, to this particular place? It's because this is the place where, where God is going to revitalize Elijah's hope. This is the place where, where God's going to revitalize Elijah as a person, where, where God is going to remove Elijah's despair or at least deal with it so that Elijah can go on and live his life as a faithful prophet. God brings him to this place because he cares for him, not just his physical body, but his soul, his spiritual well-being as well. God cares for him by providing physical food. God cares for him by bringing him to the place of spiritual healing. But God also cares for him by letting him talk. What are the, what's the first thing that he does once, once he gets to Horeb? God asks him, what are you doing here, Elijah? We know that God is omniscient. He knows all things. He doesn't need to know Elijah's answer to that question. He knows the answer already. He's asking the question as a way of ministering to the prophet. What's the first What's the first step in, 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 in dealing with our despair? Well, it's identifying the thing that's causing us to despair. And the wonderful counselor knows that just as well as any of us do. And so he asks him twice, what are you doing here, Elijah? And Elijah responds, he, he identifies the reason, he identifies the things that are leading to his despair. God cares for Elijah. But perhaps this is punctuated most by the thing that God doesn't do when Elijah gets to Horeb. He doesn't scold him. This is perhaps one of the things that surprises us most, some of us at least, is that sad, despairing Elijah is not scolded. In response to Elijah's despair, God doesn't get mad, he doesn't scold, he doesn't even seem to show any frustration whatsoever. God is not mad at his people for being sad. But, but, but isn't, isn't there a lie from the devil that, that is kind of the opposite of that, right? Wouldn't, wouldn't the devil have us to believe that, that, yes, God is mad at you for being sad? Wouldn't the devil have us to believe that, yes, our, our Heavenly Father is mad at us for being sad? Because, you know, Christians, according to the devil, are supposed to be happy people. They're supposed to be people that are always smiling, that are never able to cry, and that are never able to be sad. And if you think about it, that's, that's a pretty effective mode of attack. It's a pretty effective move on behalf of the devil to get us to believe that. Because if I believe that God is mad at me for being sad, then I basically have two options on the table. I can change the way that I'm feeling on my own without dealing with any of it, which never works. Or I can run and hide from him, which is likely the, the option that most of us choose. 
And so all the devil has to do to, to, to get me to avoid God when I'm sad is whisper this little lie in my ear, right? He's mad at you for feeling the way that you're feeling. And the result is that, that by believing that lie, I remove myself from the only one who can help me in my despair, which is God himself. You see how, how clever he is. You see how clever that little lie is. But also see that, that, that avoiding God in seasons or days or moments of despair is from the devil. It's not from the Lord. I can't conceive of any situation where God would tell his people who are broken and hurting and sad to go farther away from him when they need to be nearest to him. This is not true of the ministry of Christ either. Right? This is not how Christ dealt with the people that surrounded him. This is not how Christ himself dealt with the sad and with the brokenhearted. God's not mad at you for feeling sad. But he also doesn't mean to leave you there. He also means to bring you out of that sadness and despair. Because God's in the business of caring for, he's in the business of, of healing us from our despair, not leaving us in it. Well, how, how does he do that? Well, he does what he does he does for us what he did for Elijah here in this particular passage. He reveals himself. Right? That's the second way that God cares for those or God mends those who are in despair. Well, he cares for us. Or he, revealed, he, he shows that he cares for us by revealing himself. We know that, that God led Elijah to a specific place for a specific reason which was basically to reveal himself to Elijah again, to remind him, really, of who he was. And one of the first components of that reminder is the fact that God doesn't always work according to our plans. All right, this is, this is what's kind of illustrated in these events that happen outside of the cave. All right, God does not always work extraordinarily. God does not always work even quickly which is kind of what Elijah expected to happen in 1 Kings 18. Yes, God did work extraordinarily. Right? He did breathe fire from heaven and consumed the offering and licked up the, the, uh, the water from surrounding the offerings. And supposedly the people of Israel, they, they believe and confess that God is the true God. But when we come to 1 Kings 19, it's not, it's, we, don't, we don't see where that repentance is carried over into um, dismantling the kingship of Ahab and Jezebel. God does not always work extraordinarily. This is kind of illustrated by the fact in verses, uh, in verses 11 and following where, where God tells Elijah to go out and stand on the mount before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. 
And after the fire, the sound of a low whisper. God does not always work and quite frankly, even rarely works in extraordinary, in extraordinary ways and, and quick ways, but he is faithful to work quietly behind the scenes over long periods of time. This is how God does his business. This is how God brought about redemption, which is the furthest thing that we can conceive of, which is why we read Romans 11, verse 33, or the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable are his ways. How differently does he think from us? Because if we could, we would change things immediately. But God in his wisdom doesn't see fit to do that. God reveals himself as a God who who thinks differently than we do. But God also reveals himself here at Horeb as a God who doesn't change. We know that, that changing circumstances oftentimes changes us. It changes our emotions. It changes our state of being. We can go from happy to sad in the moment of time with just one little bite of news but from the beginning of this chapter to the end we see a God who is not affected in that same sense by changing circumstances we see a God who remains stable and steadfast when Elijah is wavering and up and down we see a God who is stable who is free from panic who is immovable and who is not surprised in the least by Jezebel's unrepentance the plan stays the same for God. He reveals himself to Elijah and he calls him to carry out the plan that that, that was in place before Elijah had his breakdown later on in the chapter. God is unchanged by changing circumstances. But he also reminds Elijah that he is a God who keeps his promises. He is a God that has not forsaken his covenant. Now, it's important to note that, that covenants include both blessings and curses. And 1 Kings is kind of this extraordinary book where we get to see the height of God's covenant blessings upon Israel under the, the, the kingship of Solomon. We get to see Israel bloom in full bloom and prosper under Solomonic leadership. But towards the end of the book where we are now, we get to see a transition out of covenant blessing into covenant cursing. And this is the thing that Elijah is struggling to see. He's living in this transitional period from covenant blessing to covenant cursing, and it just doesn't make sense to him. It it looks to him like God has forsaken his promises to Israel. But what it really is, is God's covenant curses at work. But not at work to extinguish his people fully and finally, because God God does remain faithful to his people. God doesn't forsake his promise to send someone who would save his people. This is proved in in verse 18 where God promises to preserve 7,000 people, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. God shows himself, reveals himself, reminds Elijah that he is a God who is faithful to his promises. Very basic 
systematic theological truths that are communicated in this chapter, that that God is infinitely wise, that He is immutable, that He is faithful. All of these things communicated to, to Elijah. For what? Because a reminder of who God is was for Elijah to be his remedy from his despair. Or the reminder of who God is was to heal him and encourage him in his despair. Perhaps one of the more, one of the other lies that the devil tries to sell to us in moments of despair and in seasons of sadness is that that God, not only that, that God is mad at me for being sad, but also that he can't help me. And especially that he can't help me by reminding me of who he is. In other words, the devil would sell us the lie that systematic theology is not a remedy for those in despair. He would have you believe that, that the study of God himself, of theology proper, is nothing but a, a placebo, a sugar pill, that it's ineffective, that it's impotent, and that it's unable to heal. And not only does he sell that lie, but we buy it pretty easily. Instead of reading systematics that remind us of of who God is and reading the Bible and, and reflecting upon these very basic truths about God and his sovereignty and his immutability and his his personability, as his personalness. Instead, we follow the the devil's advice of medicating the symptoms instead of dealing with the heart defect. The substances help us to forget that we're sad and then put us to sleep and then the social media that we all love so much translates us into another non-existent version of the world's utopia and whatever else is in his pharmacy. But the pharmacy that we really need for moments of despair is in the Bible itself. It's in our systematic theologies. It's who God is. It's being reminded that He is in charge, that He is wise, that He doesn't change, and that He's faithful. He's made promises to me. Revelation is the remedy for despair. That's what God uses to heal and sometimes that's quick and sometimes it's over the course of time. Sometimes it takes a long time. But whether it's quick or whether it's over the long course of time, God does not render his servants useless while they are despairing. God heals us from our despair, number one, By caring for us, number two, by revealing who he is, number three, by using us. God doesn't give us a pass from faithfulness, even when we're sad. Having asked Elijah why he's here twice and then getting the same answer twice and having revealed who he is again to Elijah, God now calls Elijah to action towards the end of the chapter. But I love how, I love how the, the text doesn't make it clear that Elijah's done working through his despair. It's also not clear that Elijah is now the most happy person on the face of the earth. 
It's not clear that Elijah is, is better. It's not clear that his circumstances have changed. In fact, the circumstances that made him sad in the first place haven't changed. Yet God calls him back to work. It communicates that, that being in despair does not give us a pass from faithfulness. It communicates that we are still called to, to, to be faithful to the Lord while we are in despair and while we're in seasons of sadness. In other words, faithfulness is not mutually exclusive with despair. They can both go on at the same time and they must go on at the same time. And so we have to ask ourselves, though God has not cast us aside in our moments of despair, have we cast him aside? Have we cast faithfulness aside? Has our despair become an excuse for our sin? Has our despair become an excuse from our callings? Well, this passage would indicate that, that, that faithfulness, serving God in our jobs and in our church as moms and as dads, in our own spiritual development, giving that the actual effort that it requires is one of the medicines that God uses to lift us from our despair. What better way to regain hope than by participating in God's plan for redemption, redemptive history? Faithfulness is, is the antiviral of despair. We learn kind of in the, in the middle of the passage when Elijah actually gets to speak in response to God's question. One of the more important things I think that this passage teaches and it's that Elijah's reason for despair was because redemption seemed to be at risk. That's one of the more admirable things about Elijah is, is that his despair is onset by the people of Israel's disobedience, by their, by their ignoring covenant faithfulness to a wonderful God. Elijah was convinced that, that redemption itself was at risk or, or that it had been ruined altogether. And from his perspective, it looked like there, there was no hope for his people. But for the Christian today, on this side of the cross, on this side of Christ having already come, have no reason to be in despair. Because Christ has already killed despair. Despair died with Christ on the cross. Despair died when Christ rose again. Right? Because of the complete and finished work of Christ, technically the Christian has no reason to despair because we are never, ever, ever without hope. Because the work of Christ is already finished. It's done. It's completed. Now, we, we may have sadness in this life. Our circumstances that we encounter may demand that we be sad. We should be sad when our loved one dies. But we are never without hope. 
And so even though everything in this life may be taken away from us, our sure salvation in Christ can never be taken away from us. Eternity can never be taken away from us. Death may try to take it away from us. Sickness may try to take it away from us. Other circumstances may try to take it away from us. But hope cannot be taken away because Christ has already and forever assured that it cannot be taken away. It is done. It is finished. Christ has died. He has rose again. Redemption has been accomplished. And he is coming back. And he is going to fix everything. And so by definition, the Oxford Dictionary says the definition of despair is the complete absence or loss of hope. By definition, there is never complete absence or loss of hope in Christ because the work is already done. Our hope is secure. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray very simply that theology, that theology that you've taught us in our heads would seep down into our hearts. That we would be a people marked by hope in Christ. And no matter our circumstances in this world. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.